Good morning. I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 9. After maybe about a six-week six week break, we're getting back into the Gospel of Mark, and we're in a section, Mark uh, chapter 8, verse 22, all the way through the end of chapter 10, which is about discipleship and what it means to follow the Messiah, and specifically what it means to follow a Messiah who suffers and is rejected and dies, and we're learning what it means to die to ourselves, take up our cross, and follow the Lord. I'm just going to move this back. Give me a little more space here. All right. So, I want, to, I want to read uh, Mark chapter 9, verses 38 to 41. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This is the Word of God, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a sure and certain word, the Holy Bible. You have spoken clearly so that we would know you and follow you and bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God and glorify your name. And Father, this particular passage has a purpose, and I pray that the Holy Spirit would impress the meaning, the purpose, the transforming power upon our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The Lord wants us to have a gracious heart toward all of His followers. If we are commanded to love our enemies, and we are, if we are commanded to love all of our neighbors, and we are, then how much more key is it that we are commanded to love one another as fellow Christians? Not only the fellow Christians who are part of our own little subgroup, our church family, but our fellow Christians who are scattered about throughout our region, our nation, and our world. And this love requires that we not be clicky, that we not be partisan, that we not assume that our subgroup has exclusive claim on God's kingdom or on Jesus' name or on true worship or on faithful ministry, that we not be 
envious or boastful or competitive over against other Christian groups and that we not be too quick to judge or dismiss other professing Christians who claim to follow Jesus but who aren't part of our local fellowship. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love is patient and kind and that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. True love is disposed to assume the best about others and to rejoice when others succeed and experience God's blessing. Now, sometimes that's a lot easier said than done. There is a temptation to stand against or to distance ourselves from other disciples who aren't following us because they aren't part of our little tribe. Those people aren't part of our discipleship group. They're not part of our church family. They didn't complete that training program. They're not part of our theological tribe. Therefore, those people cannot represent Jesus and they should not attempt to minister in Jesus' name and authority. We are legit and authorized. They are not. We are worthy. They are not. We are where it's at. They are not. But Jesus sets before us a vision that is far greater than just us. So, Let's walk through this passage. It's just four verses. It won't take us too long to walk through these four verses, and then we'll draw out some important lessons for us. In verse 38, John speaks, and he's evidently speaking on behalf of the twelve, all twelve apostles. These disciples saw something, and they thought something, and then they attempted to do something. What did they see? They saw someone casting out demons in Jesus' name. Jesus uses the phrase, a mighty work, in verse 39. So they saw someone doing a mighty work in Jesus' name. That's what they saw. And what did they think? They thought, that's not cool. He's not part of this duly commissioned group of 12 apostles. And so what did they do? They tried to stop him. Do, do you understand their mindset? They thought, we are the exclusive club of authorized ministers. You've got to be part of us or otherwise you should be shut down. And we're going to try to shut you down. Apparently they didn't succeed. They tried, but oh well. Why would they think this way? Why would we think this way? Well, there's a very real temptation to have a territorial, turf-protecting, exclusive club mentality. We so prize our own privileges that we are deeply disturbed that anyone else out there would come to share in those same privileges. They're not, they're not part of our group. They didn't come to the right place at the right time with the right people. What are they thinking? There's a very interesting complementary passage to this one in the Old Testament. 
Moses was a great prophet of the Lord, and the Holy Spirit rested upon Moses. And on one particular occasion, Moses gathered 70 other men, 70 elders, and uh, Moses and these 70 gathered together at the appointed place, and the Lord came down, and He took the Spirit that was on Moses, and He put that same Spirit on the 70 elders, and they all prophesied. It's wonderful. But there were these two guys, Eldad and Medad, and they were back in the camp. They didn't come to the right place at the right time with the right people. And the Spirit came upon them. And they started to prophesy. And a young man came and ran and told Joshua. And Joshua said to Moses, My Lord Moses, stop them! You know what Moses said? Moses said to Joshua, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. Moses had a humble, generous mindset. He just didn't think it was, it's got to be me and maybe a few other special folks. I'm in control of, control of this thing. He wasn't thinking that way. And he was glad that others would share in that gift. Moses had to correct Joshua. And here in Mark chapter 9, Jesus must correct His disciples. He corrects them in terms of their conduct and also in terms of their underlying outlook and attitude. In terms of their conduct, He tells them, do not stop Him. Verse 39, if we see someone casting out demons in Jesus' name, or healing the sick, or doing mighty works, or speaking powerfully, or making new disciples, planting churches, launching movements in Jesus' name. Jesus says, do not stop Him. Don't throw cold water on such people. Don't disparage or discredit them. Leave them alone. Don't hinder their efforts. Don't insist that they can only gain legitimization if they come under our umbrella of our little subgroup. Remember that Jesus is speaking about people who are casting out demons or doing other mighty works in His name, in His authority, in His power. Not in their own name. Not in the name of a false god or an idol or an evil spirit, but in the name of Jesus. And when we see people visibly seeking to do good in the name of Jesus, we're not, we're not we're not talking about people who are visibly seeking to do evil in the name of Jesus. That's a completely different issue, different from the circumstance here. When we see people visibly seeking to do good in the name of Jesus, our default position should be not to oppose. Do not stop Him. But Jesus doesn't just leave it at the level of conduct. He also addresses our underlying outlook and attitude. And in verses 39 to 41, he employs three statements that address our underlying attitudes. Each statement begins with the word for. Okay, middle of verse 39. 
For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. People who act in Jesus' name evidently have a positive attitude toward Jesus, and they won't be disposed to speak evil of him. So, if they have a positive attitude toward Jesus, and we have a positive attitude toward Jesus, why would we be antagonistic toward them? Verse 40, the second reason. For the one who is not against us is for us. People who act in Jesus' name and thus have a favorable attitude toward Jesus are not against us. They are not our foes. They are our friends. We're on the same team. Value them as such. And then finally, verse 41, the third reason For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. That that, that approaches the issue from a a slightly different perspective, okay? In the case of the people who are are out there doing mighty things in Jesus' name, it's like this. You're, You're part of a particular subgroup like the 12 apostles, and you're looking out there and you're seeing other people do things in Jesus' name. And Jesus says, have a, have a positive attitude toward them. But in verse 41, the picture is a little different. Now, it's, it's we, we who are part of a particular subgroup following Jesus, we are out there serving the Lord in the world, and there's other people out there who bless us, help us, show us kindness, and support us because we belong to Jesus. And that means something to those other folks because they evidently have a positive attitude toward Jesus too. And when they see us serving the Lord, knowing that we belong to the Messiah, they want to help, they want to support. And Jesus teaches us that people who act for Jesus' sake, by demonstrating practical care, hospitality, and kindness to us precisely because we are following Jesus, they are demonstrating their own love for Jesus, and their conduct is pleasing in God's sight, and they will not lose their reward. So here's my summary of what's going on here. People who act in Jesus' name and people who act for Jesus' sake are, in fact, disciples of Jesus who esteem Jesus' name and esteem Jesus' people. Although they aren't part of our own little subgroup, they are still Jesus' disciples. Like us, they also want to honor the Lord. They are not against us. They are for us. They're not antagonists. They are allies. And Jesus says, esteem them, value them, and honor them accordingly. That's the passage. Now, with with that basic understanding of the passage in mind, I want to draw out four very important lessons. Here's the first lesson. We must learn to be Jesus-centered, not us-centered. By us-centered, I mean that we are centered on and we think kind of proudly and territorially about our 
ministry, our church or our denomination, or if we're not part of a denomination, then churches like us, our movement, our theological niche. We think that it's all about our thing, our circle. This is where it's at. And it's pretty obvious in this passage that Jesus is trying to get us to think less in terms of us, our own little group, and more about the value and the preciousness of His name. Do you see that in verse 38? Someone is casting out demons in Jesus' name, but the apostles are focused on the fact that, well, but He's not part of us. What's more important? In verse 39, same idea. Jesus says, no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Don't get hung up on the fact that they're not part of us, but if they're operating in Jesus' name, power, and authority, and they're blessing Him, they're honoring His name, they're furthering His work, then clearly we must be centered on Jesus. And the same thing comes out in verse 41. These folks who would give us a cup of water or other refreshment and support because we belong to Christ. Not because we belong to them. Because we belong to Christ. Therein lies the the preciousness. We want to lift high the name of Jesus. And we want to see others lift high the name of Jesus. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, what we proclaim is not ourselves. It's not about us. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. He is Lord. His name is precious. We are servants. If we are Jesus-centered, then we will view others not mainly in, in terms of their attachment or lack of attachment to us, but mainly in terms of their attachment or lack of attachment to Jesus. That is the key thing. Are they in fellowship? Are they dedicated to our Lord Jesus Christ? And also, if we are Jesus-centered, then we will be preoccupied with actually following Jesus and not be preoccupied with assessing, questioning, and resisting other followers of Jesus. There's an interesting, one of our favorite accounts in the Gospel of John chapter 21. It's not making exactly the same point, but I think that the, the outlook is applicable where the Lord Jesus Christ tells Peter that he's going to pay the ultimate price. He's going to be martyred in the course of his ministry. And they're walking along there, and Peter, Peter learns that he's going to suffer and die. And Peter sees the Apostle John over there. Jesus hasn't ascended yet. And Peter says, what about him? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus told Peter, what's that to you? If I want him to do this or that or if he remains a while or doesn't, what's that to you? You follow me. I'm telling you, that's enough. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. That's the call in these chapters. And that should occupy our 
every fiber of our being. Let's be very slow to form opinions, sharp opinions of others. Learn to be Jesus-centered, not us-centered. Lesson number two, we must learn to appreciate other disciples in other settings who are doing good work in Jesus' name. The apostles show a remarkable wrong-headed focus here. They look out and they see this man and, and what they're thinking is, he's not with us and that calls into question everything he's doing. And he really should be shut down. They're focused on what is dissimilar, what is suspect or unfamiliar or potentially problematic, and they give him the stiff arm. Wouldn't it be a much better focus in keeping with our Lord's instructions to look out and think, wow, he's endeavoring to serve our Lord Jesus Christ. He's doing a good work in Jesus' name. And some folks who were previously demon-possessed have been freed of their affliction. Some folks who weren't previously in church, now they're in church. Some people who weren't previously hearing the Word of God, now they're hearing the Word of God taught. Oh, but, man, I wish their theology was better. I wish their, I wish their ministry methods were different. They're too pragmatic, or they're too freewheeling, or... They haven't signed on to the right program. We, 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 we get the wrong focus so easily. Listen, in Philippians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul looked out from prison. He had been imprisoned. And because he was imprisoned for the sake of the Gospel, other preachers grew in their boldness to proclaim the Gospel. And Paul said, you know what? Some of those guys who've, who've gained more courage and boldness to proclaim the gospel, they are preaching from selfish and insincere motives. It's like, some are preaching from goodwill, and some are preaching from improper motives. What shall I say? He says, I rejoice. I rejoice that Christ is proclaimed. Now, if Paul can say, if Paul can rejoice that Christ is proclaimed even through people that he knows to be of bad character, then how much more should we in situations where we don't even have reason to suspect their character are seeking to do the work of the Lord? Shouldn't our mindset be to be gracious and to assume the best about them? We, we, may, we may look out, you know, the, the New Testament refers to us as jars of clay. We're fragile, weak vessels through which the great treasure of the gospel shines forth. And we might look across the way and see someone that we think is so different or deficient. And we might think, how in the world can the treasure of the gospel shine through that fragile jar of clay? But if we are wise, we will take a good look at ourselves and think, how is it that the treasure of the gospel can shine through fragile and weak jars of clay like us, like me? Appreciate what God is doing through other disciples. Lesson number three. Now, before I tell you what lesson number three is, 
one of the challenges that always uh, faces us when we read the Scriptures is we're supposed to read the Scriptures in view of the whole Scriptures. All Scripture taken together is like a map. It's a map of the whole thing that God wants us to know and understand and live. And sometimes what what we'll do is we'll take a part of the map, one part of the map, and get really excited about it and run crazy with it. And when you do that, it, it, it doesn't really matter what part of the map it is. When you take a part of the map, disconnect it from the whole, and run wildly with it, you will invariably go off the map. So you always have to read Scripture in light of the whole Scripture. And so I want to help you, I want to help us think through something really crucial here. Okay, so here's the third lesson, putting this passage side by side with some other passages which I'll mention momentarily. We must learn to trust Jesus as the righteous judge who will assess and judge all professing Christians and their works at the final judgment. Now you might wonder, why are you saying that? Well, here's why. Because what's envisioned in Mark chapter 9 is other people who are operating and acting and serving in the name of Jesus. What's interesting, though, is that Scripture tells us that there are actually many people out there who are claiming to act and serve in the name of Jesus who are actually not true disciples, and they are bound for eternal destruction. I'm thinking of Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, where Jesus says, and you'll, you notice some similarity of language here with a Mark 9 passage. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many, think about that, not a few, not some, many, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So, part of our biblical understanding of reality, of the world, is that there are many professing Christians out there who call Jesus Lord and do things in His name, or at least they claim to, and they're not true Christians. Christ doesn't really know them. They don't really belong to Him, and they're destined for eternal fire. So, how do you, how do you, how do you fit that outlook of Matthew 7 with this outlook of Mark 9? I want to help us think through that, Okay? Number one, we are not supposed to assume, assume the role of final judge. That's not our role. The Father has appointed Jesus as the final judge who will judge the world in righteousness at the end of the age. Number two, we are supposed to be content with messy because the mess isn't going to be sorted out until the end of the age. That's not my idea. If it's my idea, that's rather worthless. 
But Jesus taught us that in a couple parables in Matthew chapter 13. You see, the kingdom of God, the, the, the visible, manifest kingdom of God draws into its orbit it's, it's, it's vi visible manifestation on this earth at the present time. It draws into its orbit true and false disciples, true and false converts. And Jesus told in the parable of the weeds that you have this wonderful wheat growing up, but weeds were sown among the wheat, and someone asks the question, do you want us to get rid of the weeds? And Jesus says, no. Because if you try to get rid of the weeds now, you might damage some of the wheat. Wait. Be patient. It will be sorted out at the final judgment at the end of the age. And then in the parable of the net, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 47, Jesus said, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So you got this net drawing in all kinds of people, the good and the bad. When does it get sorted out? Jesus says, verse 49 in Matthew 13, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Some of us want or wish that everything was sorted out now. You should give that a little thought and see if you really want that. But we want, we want everything to be neat and tidy. The kingdom of God is messy in this present life, full of the good and the bad, the righteous and the wicked. And what Jesus tells us is, in Mark chapter 9 and other passages is, as you're, as you're interacting with the, the global body of Christ, you've got to be charitable and humble and generous in the way that you see and relate to other professing Christians. It doesn't mean you're naive. You know that there's a lot of frauds out there, but we suspect our own ability to, <laughs> to figure that out now, and it's not our job anyway. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. In the context of close relationships, we are called to, to be very loving and pursuing one another when someone seems to go off the rails or someone seems to be displaying a lot of bad fruit, right? We're not supposed to just turn a, turn a blind eye, but, but Jesus tells us to, to confront one another, to correct. We see a brother or a sister in sin. We want to appeal to them to repent, to understand their sin, to turn back to the Lord. We want to win them. We want to win our professing brothers and sisters who've seemed to go off the rails, the Bible gives us criteria for false teachers. If, 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 if we're interacting closely or receiving ministry from a false teacher and they show the signs of the, the kind of bad character or false teaching that the Bible identifies, then we're not supposed to play dumb. We're supposed to exercise discernment. But the reality is, is that your ability and my ability to have confident knowledge about tens of millions of professing believers in the world is, it's absurd. 
It's, it, it's, it's challenging enough to have a good understanding of where a couple hundred people are in terms of their spiritual walk. When it comes to other churches and other ministries, even in our region, what do we have to do? We have to believe all things, hope all things, endure all things, assume the best, walk in love, do our best. We need to do our best to make sure that each one of us hears, well done, good and faithful servant. And while we're striving to be holy, let's be charitable, kind, and gracious toward others who also appear to be following Jesus. Trust Him. Trust Him to sort it all out and to render judgment at the end of the age. Finally, lesson number four. We must learn to value our friends. And by friends, I mean fellow Christians. Especially in this present hour when we have so many outspoken enemies. Look at verse 40. I'm referring to verse 40. For the one who is not against us is for us. And what I want to tell you is, is that wise people value their friends, their teammates, their fellow soldiers. I'm not talking about the people out there who under the umbrella of Christianity are obviously outside of Christ as evidenced by the fact that they deny biblical authority. They deny the deity of Christ. They deny the atonement. They deny the resurrection. They deny that He's coming again to judge the quick and the dead. They deny the eternality of heaven and hell. I'm talking about within the large tent of people who believe in the triune God. They believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they believe that the Word became flesh. They believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and that He rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and poured out the Holy Spirit on His people. And He's building His church. And He's going to come again. There's a lot of people who believe that. It's a big tent. And, and there's a lot of differences. There's a lot of theological and pragmatic differences with a lot of people under that tent. And what I'm trying to say is this. The enemies are lining up against us. Always have. Always will. It's what Jesus teaches us to expect. Don't we have better things to do than to, to take cheap shots and make snap judgments and get all opinionated about other people who are in the tent? value anyone who's confessing Christ amid the avalanche of spiritual disaster that's all around us. Let us resolve to bless them. Others, I'm talking about other disciples in other places. Let us resolve to bless them, not to curse them. To lift them up in speech and prayer, not to tear them down. To thank God for them, not to complain about them. To love them, not suspect them. To give them a cup of water and refresh them, not to turn away from them because they're not part of our group. Let's resolve to treat them as brothers and sisters, not as threats or rivals. And let us rejoice in their successes and not wish for their failure. And should it ever so happen that their steps do falter, 
let us not gloat in their failing, but rather grieve for them and pray earnestly for their recovery. Value everyone who seeks to live and love and serve in Jesus' name. I want to close with this. I don't want to be known as a man who had an opinion about everyone. And, 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 and you've got to understand, I have a lot of opinions. I have a lot of feelings. And most of them aren't worth much of anything, which is why I, I, do, not, I do not seek to share my opinions and feelings in this pulpit. Because I, I'm not trying to live according to them myself. Why would I pass them off on you? I want to be ordered by the Word. I don't want to be known as a man who had an opinion about everyone, who makes superficial and snap judgments, who was against merely everyone, who is skilled at cutting others down, and who thought that our little subgroup is the holiest of them all. And the reason I don't want to be known as a man like that is because having that kind of criticizing outlook is unbiblical and unfaithful. Are there times to call people out? Of course. You read through the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are times when you have to call someone out, even by name. But that's not to be the steady diet. On a whole, we want our ministry to focus on lifting high the name of Jesus, lifting high the words of Jesus, lifting high the preciousness of belonging to Jesus, lifting high the privilege of doing kingdom work in His name. When we gather together, we gather not to point our fingers at the other imperfect jars of clay that are out there. Instead, we gather so that we would look up together, look up to the Lord Jesus Christ and stand in humble adoration of Him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that these words would not just be words on a page. I pray that these words would get into the inner workings of our heart, our mind, our outlook, our conversation. Protect us from error. Protect us from taking any single aspect of Scripture and running off the map with it. We don't want to twist Scripture. We want to understand all of it and live under its blessing and authority. So, Father, we pray that you would transform our lives. We pray. We pray for our fellow Christians who are out there in western Maine, in the United States, in the world. We know very few of them, but we know that they're out there, and we pray that you would strengthen them and support them and work through them to glorify your name and build your kingdom. We pray that the name of Jesus would be glorified in and through this place. In his name we pray, amen.